So, I know I'm, 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 I'm specifically trying to make some people angry in this oh, room. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I can't live up to that to that level. I'm not on that level. So, I'm just glad he doesn't do that anymore. Right? Yeah. I, me too. Uh, honestly. Um, I almost had to unfollow him a couple times. <laughs> so, what was I saying? All right, so here's the... Yeah, criticize. The idea is, yes, criticism, but it also has to do with uh, making, making a judgment on, like, who this person is. Stop that. Uh you don't know their whole story. And the truth is, if you would turn it, if, if you did, you might understand better what's going on there. And uh, we, we rush to judgment. There's this wonderful word that we all use incorrectly uh, most of the time, which is prejudice. And that word literally means to, uh, that word literally means to judge ahead of time. So that word means. And uh, prejudge, prejudice. It's it's it. It means making a judgment about someone before you know anything about them, or just on first glance. And Jesus is specifically talking about that. He's warning us that when we judge, we make ourselves liable to judge, to being judged. And he says, "For in the way you judge, you will be judged." And in your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Jesus says this kind of thing quite often. In fact, he talks about it is the merciful who will receive mercy. If you're ready to hold a standard up against someone else, then God's going to say, all right, okay, that's your standard. Let's look at you now. (laughs) It's only the merciful who looks at a person and says, okay, I love you and, and... you know, <laughs> I'm just going to accept you as you are and we'll walk through this together. That That's the kind of thing that God's calling us into. And out of the, well, you know, those kind of people, which this, <laughs> we are at the heart. It is voting day. It's election day. And we are at the heart of the place where this kind of judging happens the most powerfully in our nation. It is amazing to me. I had somebody, I don't know him well, but he's a friend on Facebook and he, he put a thing on his Facebook page. How can you be a Christian and vote for a Democrat? Okay. And that, that's what he put. That's what he put on his Facebook. Are you okay? (laughs) He put that on, he put that on his Facebook page and, uh, and he had quite a few people saying, I know, right? You know, like uh, underneath that. And so I, I was like, I got to cause a little trouble. <laughs> so I, I, I just asked him, I said, is this an actual question? I mean, do you want an answer? <laughs> huh? I'm, I'm willing to bet he didn't. Are you with me? Like, I'm, I'm almost positive he didn't want an answer. I'm, al- I'm almost positive he was just, you know, throwing something out there. You know, guys, 
Facebook is dangerous. But that's why I asked him, I said, do you really want to know or is this a rhetorical question? His response to me was, it's a challenge. I said, I really don't know what that means, but if you would like me to tell you how a Christian could vote for a Democrat, I would be happy to tell you. Okay? Because I know a lot of people who love Jesus very much who refuse to vote Republican. And they have very Christ-like reasons to do so. And I also know a lot of Republicans who refuse to vote Democrat. And they have very Christ-like reasons to do so. So I think probably we should just let people vote and not say you're not a Christian unless you vote a specific way. Are you with me? Because I, I, I'm sorry, but we all have a different perspective on the world. And I'm, I'm, I, I think it's, it's a problem. Uh, Sunday morning I got up and said, uh, you know, here at Fremont Community Church, we will never, ever tell you who to vote for. But you should be praying, maybe fasting, and you absolutely should vote. But I'm not going to stand up and be like, if you don't vote this way, you're obviously from Satan. Okay, that's not what's going to happen. My, my simple question, I didn't even state an opinion. But my simple question was responded to pretty vehemently <laughs> by people who were like, well, if you don't know how to stand for righteousness, and one lady said something about, you know, uh, about, you know that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And I was just like, uh-huh, you do. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> Maybe you should think about, I had a lady in my church <laughs> posted yesterday, and as soon as I saw this post, I was like, oh, you are just asking for trouble. But she posted, where would Jesus be right now? At a Trump rally or walking with the caravan? Uh, I was like, <laughs> oh, honey, you better lock your doors. Because <laughs> that's, that's the most important question we could possibly be asking. And it's going to get her in a whole lot of trouble because there's a lot of people that are going to get mad about that. Um, so, for the record, he'd be with the caravan, but we're just going to keep moving. And yeah, I'm putting that on the internet. <laughs> Jesus always went where there was hurting, where there was brokenness, where there was humility, where there were people suffering. That's where Jesus goes. Jesus is on the side of the sufferer. Does that mean Jesus wants them to break the law and break American law and come into this country illegally? No, I'm not saying that he does. But does he want America to change their laws and find a way to help people that need help? Maybe. Maybe we should think about that. Maybe we should pray about that. Maybe we should vote about that. I'm getting too political now. Okay. <laughs> I voted. I voted. Um, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for, but I voted. <clears throat> the point is, we can't be running around thinking that we have the ability to clearly see what's going on in another person's life. We all have, we're all wearing those glasses we talked about last week. We all have a paradigm. And our paradigm does not always allow us to see other people clearly. Our paradigm does not always allow us to have real empathy for others. I yesterday watched an amazing 
amazing <coughs> documentary, which I would recommend, although there's a lot of bad words in it. But it's a documentary, and, you know, these people are saying these words. It's called uh, uh, White Right Fit Meeting the Enemy. And it is an, a, an Islamic woman. Her name's Dia Khan. And she, she is a woman of color. She is a Muslim. And she went and had long conversations with multiple KKK leaders, uh, whatever. And her whole goal in connecting with these guys from the alt-right, her whole goal was to see and experience their humanity. She wanted to see past their, you know, disgusting views and see the human being that was that was behind it and somehow figure out what it looks like for for a normal intelligent human being to how do you go from like being a, a kid to you know to being a a guy who's you know saying we should kill all Jews and homosexuals okay like they should all be exterminated one of the guys she interviewed said that to her Oh, all Jews and homosexuals should be exterminated, every single one of them. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so she's sitting and talking with these folks. And at some point along the way, a couple of them, she was like, So you would like to see every person of color, uh, removed from the United States of America? Like, deported and he was like yes I would and he she said so you would do that to me she's looking this guy right in the eyes he got super uncomfortable and he's like no no I wouldn't do that to you and she's like I'm a Muslim I'm a woman of color you said and he's like you're my friend I, I couldn't do that to you and then he like turned it back around and he was like but if it was the only way. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, you get a glimpse of his humanity for a minute and then his system of thought just comes crashing back in and says, how dare you? Like, just... It's great. It's on Netflix. I, there are a lot of cuss words in it. Just FYI. Just for what everybody. Called? It's called face, like Meeting the Enemy, White Right Meeting the Enemy. Or facing the enemy, something like that. Really good, really good. Uh, yeah, it was great. Anyway, I do too. I'm a big documentary guy. I am. I love documentaries. Anyway, so yeah, I listened to a podcast. There's this British comedian named Russell Brand. Everybody know anybody know who that is? Okay, he is a foul, horrible. His comedy is disgusting and evil. Okay, I don't listen to his comedy. I don't, but I do listen to, he has a podcast where he has these really deep conversations with thinkers and philosophers and spiritual leaders that are really amazing. And he's brilliant. Like he's really smart. And, and that's where I discovered this lady, Dia Khan was, was, he had a conversation with her, which made me cry. It was like two hours long, this conversation. And I was crying through the whole thing. And then I was like, I have to go see this movie. And the movie made me cry really hard, too. So, yeah. 
I would recommend it. Both the podcast and the movie, I would recommend. Um, I I love Russell Brand's podcast. It's called Under the Skin, and it's fantastic. And all of his all of his stuff that happens on stage does not happen on the podcast. So he has some pretty. Uh, do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Anybody know who that is? Okay. Um, he he had a long conversation with Jordan Peterson, which was pretty awesome. I gotta say, like I. Jordan Peterson has been lumped in with a lot of really hateful people, and but he himself is not a very hateful person. But a lot, but hateful people use his books and things to to say really horrible things. Yeah, um, and I so I thought that's the kind of person he was. But we had he had a conversation with, and that's not his work is just being co opted by these these crazy folks, and he he doesn't believe any of that. And it's just anyway so. Anyway, so I, I'm a big podcast guy. Do you see what happens when I don't have notes? I'm like all over the map. <laughs> I'm a big podcast guy. And so if you want a list of 25 podcasts, that would be roughly two-thirds of the podcasts I listen to on a semi-regular basis. Um, yeah, I learn mostly audibly. I listen, and that's how I learn. So that's why podcasts are important to me. Like, I will listen to an audio book way before I'll buy an actual book because I'm, I'm just... Stuff goes in my ears and it sticks, and I read. I just can't bring myself to read sometimes. Anyway, okay, so Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not, do not notice the log that's in your own eye? I went and looked up this word log. And it literally means a squared off beam that would be used to support the rafters of a house. Have you ever been in a house that has exposed beams? Okay. You know that center big thick one that holds up all the rafters? That's the beam Jesus is talking about. So it's like, like this huge thing sticking out of your eye. And you're like, hey, can you imagine like, it would be really funny. You like think about the sketch, like where this guy is walking around with this huge thing sticking out. And he's like, hey, let me help you. Wham! Like hits him in the side of the face. I'm just going to get to your eye here. You know, every time he turns around, smack, you know, like it would be really funny. I think. Exactly. Or one of my favorite sponge, one of my favorite SpongeBob episodes when, when Patrick has that, that board nailed to his head. <laughs> Can't get through the door. It's, it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Monty Python lately, and there's this one Monty Python sketch yes. where this, oh, no. this, guy, this guy gets up, and he's, like, talking about comedy in the most professorial-like way possible. And then on the stage, is, it's being demonstrated for you. And, and it's, like, the most, like, kiddie, like, silly comedy possible on the stage but the guy the professor's explaining it and it's this weird but they do the whole thing where the guy is carrying a board you know and somebody calls his name and he turns around and he smacks the person behind him in the head you know and and then he's like but that's what i thought of when i read this and it's just like can you imagine you're walking around smacking your beam into everybody all the time and everybody knows you have the beam that's my favorite part my favorite part is that you're the only one who doesn't know. Have you met that person? Who's the only one that doesn't know they have this gigantic problem and everybody else knows they have this gigantic problem, but they don't know they have this gigantic problem and nobody has the guts to talk to them about it? 
Unfortunately, it usually lands on the pastor to have that conversation. It was even it was really bad when I was a youth pastor, okay? And I had female youth leaders coming to me. Pastor Josh, we really need you to go and talk to this young lady because she's got to start wearing a bra. <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, that is not a conversation I will be having with her. I was like, you can have that conversation with her. You're a woman, so you can have that conversation with her. I, will not, I am not having that conversation with her. And when there's a guy that needs to wear deodorant, I'll have that conversation with him. And I had it more than once, my friends. More than once where I'm taking the guy aside and I'm like, hey, you know you're 13 now. And your body works a little different than it used to. So you should, you really should probably wear some deodorant. I know you may not be aware of that. If you want me to buy it for you, I will. Like, you know, we would all appreciate it. You know? No. No, you can't just cologne yourself into oblivion and not, that's not going to take care of your BO. Plus a shower every once in a while would be a good idea. So anyway, I did have that conversation quite a few times. I also was always the one, always thinking the one that had to have the conversation with the girl or the guy that could not carry a tune in a bucket. And I'm the one that has to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't be on the worship team because you shouldn't be singing in public ever. Right? I said it nicer than that. But, I mean, how nice can you be? I mean, you've got to tell them the truth. You know, so you start with, you start soft and hope they get it. Okay, you start with, I don't know that this is your gift. It's pretty clear to me. Yes. <laughs> it's clear to you. But, but let me just say that there are some people who are living in such a state of utter and complete denial that they look at you and go, I'm not sure what you mean. You're like, uh, you you really singing is just not something that something comes easily to you, yeah. and I'm not really ready to put you on a microphone at this time. But my mom says that I have the most beautiful voice. <laughs> then go sing to your mom. <laughs> and I'm just like, listen. I'm glad your mom enjoys your voice. But we have to sing together. And I can't put someone on stage that's not singing the same notes as everyone else. I have had to have that conversation I don't know how many times. And it, it's never fun. Ever. And there's been so many times when we're sitting in some kind of situation doing tryouts or something and somebody's trying out and it, Everybody else that's on the panel or whatever is looking at me like, you know you're going to have to have that conversation again, right? Shut up. Thanks. You can go. This is what leadership looks like, friends. You're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations with people. It's my job. It's... One of the primary jobs of the leader is to have the conversation that no one else wants to have. The buck stops here 
And I don't get to pass those conversations off to other people. That's just the way it is. So if you're really thinking about being involved with Christian leadership for the rest of your life, you need to just understand that someday somebody is going to come to you and ask you to have a conversation with someone. That you're like, why do I have to have this conversation with them? Okay? You're, it's going to have to happen. You're going to have to tell somebody that you know, stop asking people for money. You're going to have to have that conversation with someone. You're going to have to have the conversation with someone. I, uh, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you cannot be on the worship team. You're going to have to have the conversation with someone. Okay, we all know that what your lifestyle is is like right now and your that your relationship with Jesus isn't what it needs to be. And I can't have you operating in leadership right now when this is going on in your life. You're going to have to have that conversation. I had to have a conversation once with a man who it was a it was a divorce situation. He was wanting to go to church in the same church with his ex-wife and her children and he had been there was a whole lot of strife in between them. And his family had asked him repeatedly not, you know, to find another church. We love you, you know, but please, we can't. This is so hard for us. And I had to have that conversation with him. I had to sit down with him and say, I, we want your family to grow, which means you can't be here. I'm telling you, difficult conversations are a part of your world when you're a leader. It's just life. So get used to it. And honestly, if, if, you know, you know, be the, be the ballsy one and have the conversation before anybody else needs to. Okay. I mean, that's a thing. Uh, we were sitting at an airport. This is horrible. It's real. It's true. We were sitting at an airport and, uh, my sister, Brittany was trying to nurse her daughter. And there was this guy, like, standing across the airport, just kind of, like, watching. And so she, like, yeah, gross, right? And so she, like, kind of, she moved to a different chair. And he moved and went. And she was just, and, and, and I'm like, what the heck? And so, like, I went over and just kind of stood in front of her, like, in between him and her. Okay? And he moved again. And that's when I just walked over and said, you need to leave. You are being gross. You are making my sister uncomfortable. Go away. <laughs> Sorry. I'm her big brother, right? I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to... Excuse me. Freak. You've got to go. I didn't say that. But I, was, but I was very... But I was just like... I was extremely... I was as polite as I could be. But I was, was not going to leave any room for speculation. I'm like, you need to go away right now. Oh, so sorry. And she's like, walks up. It's like, you creep. I know, completely gross, right? Okay, but welcome to life. You're going to have to have conversations with people sometimes. Okay. I don't know why. What I think that 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 was for free, and that was for somebody in this room. I really feel like it was. There's somebody in here that really needs to have an, a difficult conversation with someone. And I'm trying to give you the courage to do so. I don't know who that is or what the, situ- what the conversation is about, but you need to have it. Dang it, man. Okay, so <laughs> just telling you, that's why the Holy Spirit took us there. Okay, so do not, I, I want to talk for a minute about this next verse. Because a lot of times 
Uh, at verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, there's a lot of people that say, whoa, Jesus, you're being hypocritical right here. Because two minutes ago, he's like, don't judge anyone. And then the next, then the next verse, he's like, you know those dogs and those swine? <laughs> don't give them things that are holy. And that sounds a little judgy. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. It it's not, Jesus isn't judging them personally. He is just referring to them in such a way that you understand exactly who he's talking about. Because you need to recognize, especially on Facebook, when I talk about my friend who posted that thing about the caravan or whatever, um, Facebook was the wrong place to put that. Okay, you want to have this conversation with someone else who's actually going to sit and talk to you and like process? Great, great. Now, I loved it. I was like, yeah, go! But, you know... Um, but, but it's not when you like lob bombs onto Facebook. Okay. You are throwing the holy thing to the dogs because the quality of conversation, which can happen on Facebook is very low. And you need to recognize that what you're doing is you're buying trouble. You're shifting people's opinions of you. You don't even realize it. Okay, I mean, I've seen so many situations where people are putting things on Facebook that are just like taking the content of extremely personal conversations and posting that on Facebook. Okay, we, we have to recognize the context for our communication and we need to be careful about it. Okay, when you're having a conversation with someone, for instance, let's talk about someone... Uh, like an LGBTQ person, okay? And that's where they're living and that's who they are. Right? That is not the time to be to say to them, you know, God hates homosexuality. Are you doing any good for them at all? Are you doing any good for the Lord? No. People are like, I am speaking the truth. No, what are you talking about? You are you are taking something beautiful. And you're putting it in exactly the right position to be hated and trampled on. And that's what Jesus is saying. Okay? Jesus is saying to us, pay attention to the context into which you're speaking and speak in love. Meet people where they can meet you because that's what Jesus does for you. God is constantly accommodating to us. He's constantly coming to our level. Always. And Jesus is saying, you may have these high and lofty thoughts. And that's great. Don't make them crass. Don't take them and put them in exactly the wrong position. Don't throw them to people who are not going to listen. Are you with me? Because when we do that, all we're doing is we're just trying to be right. We're not trying to help them. We're just trying to feel powerful. We're not trying to do anything for the person we're speaking to. And that's not what Jesus is about. That's not what this whole thing is for. You're not in conversation with another person to win. Your conversation with another person is about connecting with them and loving with loving them because Jesus loves them. And if they have a completely different perspective than you, 
find a way to have empathy for them. I thought what this Muslim woman was doing was she was going to visit people who had said horrible, ugly, disgusting things about her. She had had an interview on the BBC. She's from Norway. She's got this beautiful British accent. Like, it was fun. It was nice listening to her talk on the documentary. It was just like, I like your voice. So, but, and she had said something about, she was talking about how if what we're trying to do is go back to what this, to what our country used to be 50 years ago, that's, not going to happen. It's not possible. There's, there's, there's no way for us to like, and she was talking specifically about England at the time. She's like, England will never be a white nation again. She said that. And she got hundreds of death threats for saying that. Right. You thought, I thought British people were nice. Apparently, Well, from what I've been, from I just listened to a thing this morning, was talking about how uh, the alt right, okay, like the kind of the KKK, the the uh, the kind of white nationalist idea is springing up everywhere in the West right now. That it's all over the place not just in the united states but in but all over europe that there are whole parties of people that are becoming very loud and very violent about we don't want any more any more uh you know people of color coming into our country we don't want any more uh refugees or or people from other areas coming into like they're trying they want them out they want them expelled they want to they're all talking about you know, it's it's the same thing that's happening in the United States right now, which is what got President Trump elected, was this kind of like rise of, which by the way, there's a term for that, which I love, it's called white fragility. And I think that's a fascinating term uh, where, and, and what she was, what this woman was saying was, we need to understand that when there's a group that's been, that's had most of the power for a long time and they're starting to lose some of that power, that that group, some, at least some of that group is going to start becoming violent. Because what made them important before is not, there is going away. And they, so the only way they know how to continue to be important is to be violent. Is that interesting or what? Anyway, so that's happening all over the world right now because the, the, the power and privilege that used to exist in being a white person is being eroded, which I'm going, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, get, let's do it. In fact, I told my wife, and this is, I can't believe I'm putting this on the internet either, but I was like, I, I, had, I had done my research on on my national candidates, but there was a couple candidates I didn't realize I was going to need to be voting for this time. And so I just, if there was a woman on the ballot, I just voted for her. Because I'm like down with the patriarchy. 
<laughs> I'm just gonna vote for the woman, like, because <laughs> that's just how I feel. Like, I'm just like, yeah, anything, let's, yes, let's, let's deconstruct this whole white male privilege thing. Let's get rid of it. Let's burn it to the ground. And, uh, and as a white male, I'm allowed to say that, and that's okay. Um, by the way, everyone in this room's allowed to say that too. I was totally joking about that. <laughs> but that's being eroded. Okay, this, this, this place of power and position and privilege that, that used to exist for white people, but especially white men, is being eroded all over the world. And so white men are getting angry. Not all white men. I'm not angry. I'm excited. Let's do it. But there is a certain subset of white men, especially lower class white men, who their status as a white man was the only thing that made them feel valuable. And now that's being eroded and they feel that erosion and they're afraid of that erosion and they're afraid they're going to lose everything that makes them who they are. And so they start getting afraid, which in, especially in men equals anger and rage and hatred. Yoda was right about that. Anybody? I got a couple of Star Wars fans. Anyway, fear becomes hatred. Fear becomes hatred. And that's what's happened. And that's what's happening. And when we are throwing our holy things to the dogs, and when we throw our pearls before swine, Jesus says, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That's what Jesus said. So when you take holy, beautiful things and you throw them into a, con- into a context that will not appreciate them, you're inviting violence. Not just violent, violence to, the, to those ideas because they are not going to be respected, but also violence to your person. And it's not how we do this. That's not what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God confronts power with weakness. We don't power up against power because we'll lose. Not just lose like we're going to lose the fight. We're going to lose because we're going to become just like them. That's the problem. When you fight power with power, the only way to stay in power is to become more powerful. Welcome to the United States of America. We have three times more nuclear missiles than any other nation in the history of the world. Why? Because the only way to keep ourselves safe is to keep ourselves strong. That was the narrative of Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party in the 80s, and that's why they were in power. We have to be the richest and the most dangerous country in the world, or else they're going to destroy us. And I have zero respect for anyone who uses fear to get elected. That goes for you too. They're saying the world's going to fall apart if we don't change all of our whatever, you know, global warming, blah, blah, blah. I believe in global warming. But stirring fear over global warming is, it's it's not how to, stop it. No one's going to respond positively to that. 
Fear never creates a positive response, ever. It always creates a defensive, violent, hate-filled response. Always, always, always. Which is why Jesus, it's why the number one command in the Bible is, be not afraid. It's almost always the first thing that God or an angel would say to people when he would show up and they'd be like, ah! He'd be like, hey, relax, it's going to be okay. Go and change your underwear. You with me? Yes. All right. Next, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Can I say this to you? Do you know what I usually, when I sit down with somebody and we're counseling, like they're coming into me, I'm just having a really hard time, Pastor Josh. And I'll just ask them. The first thing I always ask them is, have you prayed about this? Do you know what percentage of people are like, not really? Like, let, let me get this straight. You want to come in and sit in my office? And talk to me for an hour. But you haven't said one word about this to God. I can't do anything to help you. I can help you talk through this. But I'm, you, all I'm going to do is point you back to him. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to try and give you some wisdom, maybe. But mostly, I'm just going to say, there's your help. Right there. It's Jesus. Go find it. And here's Jesus going, if you need something, ask. If you're looking for something, seek it. If you want to get in somewhere. And Jesus isn't just talking about with God. He's talking about period across the board. Asking, seeking, and knocking. When you have something you need or want, Maybe you should ask for it. I took a class uh, for pastors on how to raise funds in your church. And I can boil that class down for you into a couple of small points. But the biggest one, the most important one is, if your church needs money, ask for it. Like if there is something you want to do as a church, say you need to build a building or you need to buy a sound system or you need to whatever. If you've never gone to people who have resource and said, hey, we want to do this, would you be willing to contribute? If you've never done that, then you're stupid. Well, it's just reality. You have to ask. We don't like asking. Why don't we like asking? Thank you. Pride. Well, I don't want anyone to know that I need anything. And it's easy for me to say that until I actually have something I need. And then I'm like, I'm going to find a way to do it myself. I don't want to ask. When I started out as the pastor of Fremont Community Church, like, 
my first sermon series, the Lord gave me this three-week series, and it was uh, all about what it looks like to be a healthy church, and I was excited about that. And as we were, like, week two, I started praying about, okay, what's next? And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to preach on giving. I'm like, I've only been here a month. I'm not really comfortable with that yet, Lord. I mean, I don't know these people. And the Lord was like, I want you to preach on giving. I wasn't happy about that. And so I spent the first 10 minutes of all of those sermons like apologizing for the fact that I was preaching on giving. Uh, <laughs> even though the sermons I was preaching were, if I do say so myself, one of the healthiest sermon series I've ever heard on giving. If somebody is telling you... <laughs> I am not okay with sermons that make God out as if he had no money or no resource. And if you hear a pastor who is saying to you, we're in a crisis, we have no resource, blah, blah, blah. I would think twice about giving. Number one, they're probably not. In a crisis. And number two, God's not broke. Now, if somebody says, we have this need, I mean, that's one thing. Pray about it and do what the Lord tells you to do. I would also say, if anybody is telling you, if you'll just give this much, I'll send you an anointed hanky. That's happened. Oh, yes. An anointed handkerchief. If you send, just send your contribution of $50 or more to my ministry, and I will mail you a handkerchief that I have personally anointed, and it will bring blessing to your life. I saw one where the pastor was cutting off pieces of his tie and giving them away. Oh yes. <laughs> only you have only if you have cheap ties. I the way that the way that the church talks about money has always really bugged me. Because we miss some of the biggest point. Okay? And I talk about this almost every Sunday. Giving is, a, is an activation of our faith. Giving is the way that we partner with God to provide for us. Okay, There's two ways we partner with God to provide, to see provision come to us. One is giving. And the other one is working. Okay? If you're working, great. You need to do that. You don't, won't have anything to give if you're not working. But if you're not giving, you are not partnering with God in his provision for your life. 
And that's how the Bible talks about giving. We don't give because God's broke. We give because everything we have came from him. And we're giving out of gratefulness and thanksgiving that that he has provided for us. And out of faith because we know he's going to provide for us tomorrow. Do you know what the... there? By the way, there were three different <coughs> kinds of tithe in the Old Testament. I'm talking about... Now, Abraham, the first place, place that the tithe is mentioned, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil from uh, his battle with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and company. Okay, he got some good stuff from that, some treasure. And then almost immediately after that, he meets Melchizedek, this weird guy that we don't know anything about. Okay, But apparently, some people think it was actually Jesus like a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus to the earth, which who knows? I mean, maybe it was. He's called the King of Salem, and he's called the Priest of the Most High God. And later on, Jesus is put in his category. It says Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So somehow they're connected. But Abraham runs into this guy. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives a tenth of what he had gotten in the war to Melchizedek. So that's the first time anybody ever tithes. It's right there. That's pre-covenant, by the way. That's pre-the Mosaic covenant. That's a part of Abraham's covenant. It's not a part of Moses' covenant. It's a whole other thing. We're just going to keep on moving, okay? Keep on trucking. That's before the law was given. And then at, when the law came, God said, here's the, here's the deal. I want you to give 10%, but in three different ways. Okay, so in a very real way, they were they were actually giving probably closer to thirty percent. Okay, I know, right? It's kind of like whoa, <laughs> but they would give ten percent of their full harvest, which is kind of what we do with tithe now. We kind of that's that's the most like our tithe that exists now. Okay, they would give that. But they would also give what was called a first fruits offering, and those were not the same thing. A first fruits offering was if you were a farmer and you're in your field and the first grains of wheat that come out of the ground, you would cut those off at Pentecost, by the way. That's when you did this. That's what it was about, which guess what? Pentecost was when the first fruits came to the church as well, which is why those things are connected, remember? Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people got saved, and that was the first fruits of the coming church, okay? And so it was literally the day of first fruits for the church and for the Jewish calendar. But on the day of Pentecost, they, they would cut the very first, the, most of the grain was not up yet. Most of it was still growing. But they would find the ones that were growing, and they would cut those off, and they would bring them, and they would wave them before the Lord. And that offering was all about faith. Because what if those were the only fruits that ever came out of your field? Like you see other plants there, but what if nothing ever happens? You just cut your whole harvest. That was like all of it. That's kind of crazy, right? But they were giving out of faith and they would come and they would say, Lord, you gave us this and we're trusting you for so much more. And that was also considered a tithe. Okay. And then there was another tithe where they would store up what was going on 10%. And then at the end of the year, they would invite the priest over to their house and they would have a big party with the family out of that 10%. And the priest was invited and they would worship 
in, they would worship together in the presence of the Lord with much food. Praise the Lord. Imagine saving up 10% of your income to spend on Thanksgiving. Right? We're talking about a feast. That's what they would do. (laughs) I mean, if I'm that priest, I'm a happy man. I'm, I'm like scheduling people's meals like so what are you gonna have your meal okay i'm gonna put it on the calendar no can't do it that day because i'm going to that meal so we're gonna have to do it this day and you're gonna have pumpkin pies good let's keep going (laughs) anyway so so you need to be praying about what tithe looks like for you because it isn't quite as simple as it's usually preached it's usually preach a tithe means a tenth, and that means you give a tenth. And that's fine, and it does mean that, but I think you should probably spend a little time with the Old Testament and realize, okay. And then spend a little time in the New Testament and realize that tithe is only mentioned one time in the entire New Testament, and it's not Jesus really, I mean, just anyway. So giving in the New Testament is very different than giving in the Old Testament. It should be more generous in the New Testament than in the Old if you stop at a tithe, you've stopped way too soon. Just saying. So there's a lot to think about. I don't know why we went there. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. We need to be a people who are actively looking for the blessing of God, who are asking for the things that we need. When I read this, I don't know, because I, I, read, I read this passage in multiple different translations. And I just felt prompted. The Holy Spirit said to me, there's some things that you need right now you haven't asked me for. And I was just like, okay, well, I need a million dollars. I need, (laughs) I didn't do that. It's not about that. God's not your sugar daddy. Okay. But he wants to provide for you the things that you need. The things that you, let's say it together, need. God's not here to make you wealthy. He may put a lot of money in your hands, but the money he puts in your hands is either bread or seed. Listen up. All resource that gets put in your hands is either bread or seed. Bread is to be consumed Seed is to be planted. There's nothing in the Bible about, I, I, you know, I'm going to have this gigantic store of money that way more than I need. And we're just going to do that. That's evil. Now, saving money is not evil. I'm not saying saving money is evil. I'm saying having crazy amounts of money it is that happens for a purpose. If you have crazy amounts of money, God has given you the gift of giving. Just know it. If resource just comes to you easily, then you have the gift of giving. And I, we have a, a you know a couple people in our church who they just have the gift of giving. Like every time I turn around, they're just they're just giving. Uh, this every year we we do we put together boxes of. Thanksgiving meals for families in our community that that 
can't afford to have their own Thanksgiving meal. And we ask the school to let us know who those families are. And, um, you know, who do you think probably wouldn't be able to pay to have, like, a nice Thanksgiving meal? Just give us 20 names and we're going to buy the stuff. And they can cook it. We don't cook it for them. But, and, uh, and two years in a row now, the same family has bought all 20 turkeys for that. Okay? Because they have the gift of giving. That's just who they are. And they know that when they give, God blesses. They know that. You can't outgive God. That's real. And so they're just the most generous people. I mean, it's awesome. And I'm really grateful for them. Okay, so if you have resource, you have resource for a purpose. Your life is about the kingdom. Your, night, your life is not about the, the gathering up of wealth. That's not what your life is about. When a preacher says, God wants to make you wealthy, you need to turn them off. Okay? God doesn't want to fill up your 401k. God wants you to have what you need, and he wants you to be the river of resource into making sure everyone else have, has what they need as well. Are you with me? If I'm, I'm really in a room full of people who are thinking about future Christian ministry, then you guys probably aren't ever going to have to worry about this. But maybe. <laughs> 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 Trust me. <laughs> I've been in ministry... A little over a decade now. And God has always provided for us. And I'm deeply grateful for that. I can't say there's really been any time that I thought, what am I going to do with all this money? That's not ever happened. (laughs) Also, once again, he's pointing back to the nature and the character of the Father. And he's saying, listen, when you ask God for things, don't be like worried that he's going to be mad about that. He's going to give you something good. Now in Luke, we're in Matthew now, but in Luke, Jesus uses this same phrase, this same set of like understanding. Would you give your kid a snake? No? Well, God's not going to do mean things to you when you ask him for things. But in Luke, he adds, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And he goes on to say that he, God will pour out the Spirit without measure. Ooh, that's good news, friends. So you should ask for more of the Holy Spirit every day. Just make it a part of your life. I want more of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was, that was mine for today. <laughs> All right. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Somebody tell me what that means. Come on now, somebody tell me. To me it means that um, the, the gates of sin, like sin is just so easy to do. But to follow God and to get to heaven is a lot harder. Okay. No, that's okay. Next. Someone else. Somebody have more than that? I want to ask you a question. In the text itself, right here, in this text, is there anything that tells you that Jesus is talking about the afterlife? 
Yes, ma'am. I was going to say, um, I thought that she was there when I said That's good. Back to my question. <coughs> is there anything that says that Jesus is talking about the afterlife in this verse? I mean, it says the ways of the white gate only to destruction, but the narrow gate leads to life. Right, but... It doesn't, it doesn't explicitly say about the afterlife. Right. Um, well, I've heard you say before that we can experience heaven and hell on earth. So that's honestly what I thought, because I was thinking of a C.S. Lewis quote where he said, uh, the road to hell uh, is a gentle slope, um, soft underfoot, but the road to heaven is narrow and hard to find. But I was thinking about that, like like that as in um, like on earth, like it's like, um, yeah, the end result is like, you know, heaven and eternity, but like the the road itself is like uh, how we do stuff here. Yes. <laughs> no, I agree with you one hundred percent. This is something that we do. We 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 separate this life and the next as if they weren't even related to one another. We do that because we've been taught that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. And so there's, we kind of, sort of, a little bit think that what we're, that this life is just kind of the waiting room for heaven or hell. And that's not true. Welcome to eternity. You are in it. Now. You are in it. And let me say, it is easy to do destructive things. In fact, it is much easier to be destructive than it is to be constructive. It's far easier to blow things up, to make things bad, to turn things dark than it is to be life-giving and to live in life and to receive life. It is much easier to be bad than it is to be good. Jesus is pointing towards the afterlife. But that's not the subject of his talk right now. Everything else he's talking about, everything else he's talking about in this part, he gets to the day of judgment like eight verses later. But that's just an example. Jesus is saying, yes, at the end of this wide road, there is that there is ultimate destruction but there's a lot of destruction between here and there and you're in the midst of it now when you die you're just going to stay where you were and you didn't know it that's reality 
And the fact that we disconnect, it's not, you don't die and go somewhere far off. Hell's not far off. Hell is all around you. And heaven is not far off. Heaven is all around you. The question is, which frequency are you tuned into? Which reality are you manifesting into the world? Because you are a bear, you are an image bearer. And you can either bear the image of God or you can bear the image of a lot of other things. But you're going to bear an image. And hell can find its manifestation through you now. And Jesus is saying it's not easy. It's difficult. To stay on a life-giving path, that's a hard thing to do. It doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional, always. Life-giving path is an intentional path. It's a path that you're paying attention. It's a path that you're constantly checking in. Holy Spirit, am I still in line with you? Jesus, am I following you? It's a constant, I've got to keep my eyes where they belong Because when we relax and when we let just our flesh just do what our flesh does, we become a destructive people. Why do you think you are the worst version of yourself when you're tired? Exactly. You don't have the energy to choose a life-giving path. That's why I try and stay away from human beings when I'm tired. I will literally tell my children, you don't want to spend time with me right now. I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I lose energy fast. And I, and I know that I need to be in solitude to regain that social energy. And so I tell people, my, my tank is on E, and you need to go away. Because I'm not the best version of myself right now. I'm trying, but it's a lot harder for me to keep my mouth shut, my filter in place, my thought process pointed towards Jesus, and life. it's harder to stay on that life-giving path when I have zero energy. It's difficult. And so I'm going to become a more destructive person when I don't have the energy to stay. So that's why I just stay still on the path. Right? Mm -hmm. Something you need to know, though, all those cartoons that had that escalator up to heaven, okay, they were all a lie. The escalator to heaven is moving the opposite direction, and you have to walk against the flow. (laughs) It's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know, I know, I know. It's freaking me out. So, which what number are you? You're a two. Awesome. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When I listened, when I listened to the song for one, I'm a nine, but I have a big one wing. And when I listened to the song for the one, I was just like, (laughs) but he's like, grace requires nothing of me. I'm just like, (laughs) anyway, okay, all right, listen up. 
Listen, okay, I will, I will help you understand. I will help you understand. <laughs> the Enneagram, oh man, there's so much to say. I'm, just, I'm right now reading a book uh, called The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. But I've been doing a deep dive on the Enneagram for a while. It's, it, is a, it is a system of thought that breaks up God's nature into nine pieces. And, um, uh, and also the, the opposite of God's nature. So it's also nine patterns of sin. Okay. And it is then applied to human soul. And there is one part of God's nature that you most powerfully reflect. Okay. And that's your number, whichever one of those nine that you most powerfully reflect is your number. But that also means you have that particular uh, sin as your primary problem, too. (laughs) So so, um, it's kind of a it's people have tried to use it as like a personality test. It's not a personality test at all. It is a it is a way of understanding the way that other people see the world. And it is really powerful. And it is really good. And it's a way of thinking about how you need to progress in your own growth. And it's the most powerful system like this that I've ever seen. It's actually like fifteen or 1,700 years old, this whole thought process. Okay, it began with the Eastern Christian fathers. It actually began with Pythagoras before Jesus. But, but like then the Eastern Christian fathers took it on and started talking about it as the nine aspects of God's nature. And then they also had the nine deadly sins, which then Pope Gregory the Ninth just cut down to seven, which he never should have done because he slaughtered this whole system. But anyway, now we all know about the seven deadly sins, right? Like you've heard that. Okay. Well, the seven deadly sins, there's, there's two more. One of them is fear, and I don't remember what the other one is. Um, but uh, but uh, so the, and the Enneagram is like where you land on this spectrum of, of which which part of God's nature do you most fully reflect? I am a nine, which means I reflect God, the peacemaker part of God's nature most powerfully. That's my that's the part of His nature that I most fully reflect. But it also means that my primary sin is sloth, laziness, which is really embarrassing for me to say, but it's real, and that's that's how I knew. <laughs> <laughs> that was my number more than because I had a couple numbers come up. There's online tests everywhere you can take. Don't trust them. Go read the descriptions and find out which ones resonate with you the most. That's what you need to do. Okay. Don't take the test until you've read through the descriptions and really kind of felt out which one you are. Then take the test. Do not take the test first because it's going to give you wrong. It's going to tell you wrong. It told my wife she was a two, and the whole time I'm going, you're not a two, babe. You've got some great two aspects to your nature, but you're not a two, you're an eight. And she was like, ah, I don't think I'm an eight. I'm like, you are, I'm telling you you're an eight. And eights in health, they act like a two. So, so that my wife is a healthy eight, but she's an eight. My mother is an eight as well. The, the, the nine aspects of God's nature, do you remember them? Do you remember the... Okay, so uh, number one is the person who seeks perfection. They, they, they believe that thing, things can always be better than they are. And they are normally... Uh, it's, it's difficult for them... I'm trying to remember what their deadly sin is. I mean, I could look all this up on the internet. Okay, 
So number one is that. Well, yeah, but it's. I don't like that these names because because or at least yeah, not all of them. Number one, no, because the names that are given to them can skew your view of that particular number. But number one is a person who honestly believes that things can be better than they are. And they have a very high standard both for themselves and for the world. Okay, so that's a one. A two is the unconditional love of God. It's, it's the helper. It's the person that says uh, it is, it's all about you and it's not about me at all. That's a two. And so like... We're all thinking right now, well, I'm kind of a two. You're really, you're really not. Uh, the reason that twos do that, though, is because they want you to love them back. That's why twos are so loving is because they need love. And they think by giving unconditional love, they will get unconditional love. And when you don't give them the unconditional love that they need, they get pretty upset with you pretty fast. That's that's twos. Three is the achiever. They have no real internal structure for self-worth. And so they are constantly looking for the next thing to achieve <coughs> that will tell them they have worth. They need top grades. They need the certificate of whatever. They need the trophy. They need the stuff. Threes hate participation trophies more than anyone else. <laughs> okay? They're the achiever. They work really hard. Four, uh, four is a person whose primary drive is that they be fully themselves. They are all about authenticity. And, and if and when, yeah, we're looking at you. If and when they fall into any kind of connection, like, like, like the place where they're the least comfortable is when they're the most like everyone else. Then they're immediately, I can't be that, no. So they will literally change themselves to become different than everyone else around them because because it's so important to them that they be unique and different and special. And they are unique and different and special. Some of the most amazing artists in the world are fours because they're always thinking about how can I do this different? How can we how can we have a different they're awesome. They also tend to be pretty dramatic. They also tend to be grumpy sometimes. Um, fives are those people that know everything about everything. Fives are the, the people that are just collectors, constant collectors of regular information. First time I read the description of the five, I thought I was a five because I am this way. Um, I'm not a five, by the way. Fives and nines are very close to each other. They're very a lot like. Um, fives are not necessarily very good with people. Uh, they, they very much live in their head most of the time. Um, they, they want to understand everything. They, they believe that they bring worth to the world because they understand it. That's a five. A six is a person who is always... Um, it, see, like six is one of the names on there that's the worst. Uh, it's like it'll say either the loyalist or the whatever. That's a stupid name for a six. Um, because sixes are all about security. They want to feel secure and they want everyone else to feel secure as well. And they're all about security. They're constantly, they are the ones who know where all the emergency exits are. They're the ones who know, uh, they're the ones who are always thinking what the worst case scenario might be. Uh, they keep everyone safe. And it's important to them that you are safe. And that they are safe. And the reason they're called a loyalist is because when they're under a leader that they feel that leader is safe, they will follow that leader to the end of the world. It will do anything for that leader. 
But when they are under a leader that they do not feel is safe, they will rebel hardcore against that leader. It's called a phob- being a phobic six. And they're kind of split halfway. And it really depends on what kind of leader they're sitting under. So if they feel like you're not safe and you're not keeping them safe, they will not follow you. But if they feel security coming from you, then they will be in your corner 100% and give all of their energy to, to what you're doing. And they're awesome people. Sevens are the happy folks who are always saying, hey, what's next? They just always, they're always chipper. They're always happy. They're always up. They hate any kind of negative emotion and they run away from it as hard as they can into what's fun and what's next and what's exciting. They're the ones that bring energy to every gathering. Like they're the, they're the person everybody wants to hang out with because they're super fun. But if you get into a deep conversation with a seven, they're going to be like, what are we going to do now? Like, you want to have a deep in, you know, it's not that they're shallow people, it's just that they need to stay busy or else they might feel their feelings. Okay? An eight is a a powerful, charismatic person. It is a person who is not afraid of their own opinions. They have a lot of energy. They have a lot of power. Uh, When I think of uh, President Trump is definitely an eight. Um, He's all about... Just let's just press on and he feels like he can bulldoze through any any obstacle that's in front of him, which is awesome. I think that's great. And eights have a lot of power, except that a lot of times they steamroll over people in the process. Um, eights can be eights make awesome leaders when they're healthy and horrible leaders when they're not. Um, eights are just all about like like just follow me, everyone. We're headed that direction, even if they don't know why they're headed that direction. They will lead people anywhere, even if it's to the wrong place. (laughs) Eights are the kind of people that cannot be, you cannot uh, have them in the passenger seat of your car. Because they're going to be telling you the whole time, no, you should have turned that way, or why didn't you stop too close to that person, or because they need to be in control. Eights, Eights in unhealth have serious control issues. And nines are peacemakers. Uh, nines. The, the problem with nines, however, is that uh, they they literally do see both sides of almost every fight. And when you ask them to stand on one side or the other, they're kind of going, I don't know if I can. Don't ask a nine where to go for lunch, man. Just don't do it. You don't because they're going to say, I don't care. And they really don't. It isn't that they... Just want you to have your way. That's a two. That's why a two says I don't care. A nine says I don't care because they can think of really good reasons why you should go to four or five different restaurants. And I can't make a decision. That's a nine. Um, Nines also, however, tend to, like, when we run out of energy, we just leave the world. We just kind of, like, back off into a hole and just, like, live there. That's, that's, that's what nines do. We just kind of disappear. If you ever have that friend that, like, you guys are all hanging out and then all of a sudden they're gone, that's probably a nine. Okay? That's, that's probably a nine. Okay? Don't – it might – they might be a five as well. They might be a five as well because fives do that too. But nines will do that. Nines also tend to just fall asleep in the middle of conversations. That happens. Um. The nine's primary drive is, is he, they don't want, is, is a lack of conflict. They want to see the conflicts end. Now, a nine with an eight 
with a strong eight wing might might start a conflict in order to end a future conflict. <laughs> okay. It's not that they're afraid of conflict, it's just that conflict is their primary problem in the world. And if we can't we all just get along. It's kind of their thing. So that's the nine. There's so much more to go into. So much more. Well, that one you have to pay to take the test, I think. There's a lot of free ones. But you the Enneagraminstitute.com the, the has some of the best descriptions. I love their descriptions. Because they don't simplify their descriptions down to like one word or whatever. They, they really, there's whole paragraphs. And no, you can't because, and obviously every nine is different than every other nine. And every one is different than every other one. And so there's little pieces and quirks and stuff that aren't going to fit exactly, and that aren't going to be exactly the same. Um, but, you know, landing on, for, for me, when I really saw Crap That's Me was when it was like, the primary problem of a nine is that they have to find enough energy to actually accomplish anything in the world. And that's, that's so me. Like, because nines are perfectly happy doing absolutely nothing. Okay, that's not me. For everybody who shook their heads at me, that is not me. Well, <laughs> now me, wait, not that's not all nines because you have eight sitting right next to the nine. And I eights know. are the most energetic of the numbers. So if you have nine with an eight wing, that's a nine with a lot more energy. Okay, I'm a nine with a one wing, which means that I really see that the world could be better than it is, but I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to get up and do anything about it. <laughs> so, I, I'm happy knowing that I'm a nine. It helps me understand myself a lot. And there was things about me that I have never understood. Like, my propensity to laziness. Like, for me, when I'm off the path of life, I'm in the ditch of laziness. That's where I'm at. I'm in the ditch of, I don't have energy to do this, which is why I procrastinate terribly, which is why I, uh, which, which is why a lot of problems, I'm just like, I don't know what to do about it, so I'm not going to do anything. That's a very nine point of view. And obviously all the numbers can have those points of view and have those things. But those are things that, like, the one part of me <laughs> is going, what are you doing? Like, you know, like, why would you do it? Why, are, why can't you, like, you know, make a move this direction? But more of me is a nine, and more of me is saying, I don't have the energy to do anything about that. Anyway. All right, so I want to deal with this. I want to spend the last few minutes dealing with verse 21 to through 23 because this is a very scary verse, and I want to go after it. Some people, it is a scary verse, okay? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice of law, practicer of lawlessness. Okay. This verse has scared the crap out of people for 2,000 years. This verse scares the crap out of me every once in a while. But we need to dig deep and realize what's going on here. Okay. The context is always important. Jesus doesn't say anything just 
alone. It's not, this isn't an island. Okay, so when you read what happens before it, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he just said right there should color what you're reading now. When you just read, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it's like, Jesus is continuing what he said before and he's talking about fruit. Now, what is fruit? What's fruit? Your traits. What? Your traits. Okay. Yes. Just who you are. Not word of expression of something that's internal. Okay. What's fruit? In John, Jesus says... My Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. What does he mean? Wouldn't it be like the fruits of the Spirit? I think so. As you grow, you produce more fruit. Yes. Jesus is talking about your character and your nature. He's talking about who you are. The answer I was kind of waiting to hear from you, and maybe you know me well enough not to give it, was winning people for Jesus. Because I was always told that's what that meant. It's not what it means. It's not what Jesus meant. It's not even close to how Jesus thought felt about this. Jesus is talking about our character and our nature. He's talking about who you are. You know a tree by its fruit. And let me say this to you. You know you have good theology when your theology is making you more like Jesus. I've been in a theologically a theological sifter for 10 years where God has been putting weight down on the many branches of my theology and seeing whether or not that branch with help could hold his weight. That's been going on in my heart for 10 years. And a lot of branches have been broken off, a lot. And the last few years, the, in fact, the last two years specifically, God has been the most ruthless with my branches. And there's a lot of big branches that I thought were really good branches that have been broken off these last few years. But Jesus has unequivocally said, that's not me. And some of them are branches that I know there are people that I deeply respect and love who would call that branch Jesus. And as those branches were getting pruned in my life, I was worried. Am I okay? Am I walking down some down the wide road or am I on the narrow road? Am I beginning to believe things about Jesus that are not true? 
And I was asking the Lord about that, and his question back to me was, was this verse, what kind of fruit is it bearing in your life? Are you becoming more like me? The answer was yes. The way that I was seeing the world was changing. And it was changing to match the kind of worldview that I saw in Jesus. The way that I thought about God was changing. And it was changing to match a lot closer to the way Jesus described his father. The way that I thought about myself was changing. And it was changing to match a lot more of what it looked like And I was becoming a more compassionate person. I was becoming a kinder person. I was becoming a person who was much more thoughtful than I had been before. And I said, Lord, I think this is bearing good fruit. And he said, then keep going. The measure of a theological worldview is the character it produces. If your theology is making you proud, if your theology is making you greedy, if your theology is making you afraid, if your theology is making you unmerciful, if your theology is making you the opposite of the Beatitudes, is this theology forming you to be more spiritually is this theology forming you to mourn is this theology forming you to hunger and thirst for justice because if it's not doing those things and it's not the theology of Jesus you need to find a new theology you with me So, when we get to verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And this particular fascinating resume that they bring to the Lord, prophesy, cast out demons, perform miracles. Uh, That's a pretty... Like, I've prophesied, I've cast out demons, and I've seen some miracles done, but, like, and I thought those were really great things, right? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. But if that's all that's there, and there's, and you have not been changed to be more like Jesus, Jesus isn't interested in that. I was praying for my church the other day. I just said this to my church on Sunday. I was praying to, for my church the other day, and I was praying the kinds of things I usually pray for my church. Father, fill our services with your manifest presence. Father, bring hungry people, change human lives, heal the sick, cast out demons. Those, you know. I was praying that God would provide our the amount, you know, the money we need to keep functioning and, and a couple of things. 
And uh, and the Holy Spirit kind of stopped me mid-prayer, which we know when that happens, it's not going to be good, right? <laughs> I mean, it's going to be good, but it's not going to be good. And the Holy Spirit was like, hold on. Did you ask me to make your church a healthy church? Did you ask me to make you and the people in your church more like me? Did you ask me to... And I was just like, no. And he said, that's right. Because the prayers that you were praying, you were praying for the things that make you feel like you're doing a good job as a pastor. And more than that, you were praying for the things that make everyone around you feel like you're doing a good job as a pastor. So really what you were praying for is that everybody would pat you on the head and say, good job, pastor. That's what you were asking me for. Right? <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> you ever tell God that? I do quite often. Shut up, God! How dare you! He was like, why don't, why don't you ask me to make your church a healthy church? Why don't you pray that way for a while? And he said, oh, and by the way, as, your church, as I answer your prayer and your church becomes a healthy church, there's going to be people in your church that are not interested in being part of a healthy church, and they're going to leave. There's going to be people in your church that are interested in the, the flashy and the showy and the, and the how, how, how beautifully I can wave my worship flag but who have no desire at all to be anything like Jesus, and they're not going to stay. So just be ready for that. The worst news that God, any that you can give to a pastor is your people are going to leave. He said, "But that's not the metric I'm calling you to be to care about. What I'm calling you to care about is that this is a healthy church. That's what I'm calling you to care about. You let me worry about the bills. You let me worry about." All of that other stuff. You just seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So I've changed the way I pray for my church. And in two weeks, I haven't seen God do anything. No, <laughs> I've been praying that way for a couple weeks and then I shared it with my congregation on Sunday. I was like, by the way, this is how I'm going to be praying for you now. It isn't that those things that I was asking for was bad. It's that I was asking them for the wrong reasons. I was asking them for really prideful, broken reasons. It wasn't about, it was about my glory and not his. It was about my good and not my people's good. And that's sick and disgusting. And so, (coughs) forgive me if any of that's bled over in here. Jesus isn't looking for superstars. He's looking for faithful servants who will do the things that he asks them to do. He's not interested in how big your ministry gets. Numbers are not a measure of success in the kingdom. Ever. And you're going to hear pastors say things like, we count people because people count. 
That is a very thinly veiled, self-congratulatory statement. And when somebody says to you, well, they have 10,000 people at their church, so they must be doing something right, you need to really doubt that statement. If there's 10,000 people at a church, I hope something beautiful is happening there. And maybe it is. But just that statement alone, there's 10,000 people there, does not mean anything is going right. Let me say, there was a whole lot of people that went to Hitler rallies. That happened all the time. Thousands upon thousands of people went to hear Hitler preach. So a gathering, a large gathering, does not mean the person that is speaking is doing something beautiful. In fact, it may mean the opposite. I'm not saying that small churches are the only good churches. Please don't hear me say that. That is not what I'm saying. Are you with me? Do you hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying? (laughs) Amen. That's it. Or are all like, figure out yourself. You're divergent.